baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. The double murder of Andre Carey and Steve Carter captivated the Bay Area back in 2015 when it was found that the crimes had been carried out by a trio of transient youth. For many around the Bay Area, it was a catalyzing moment that pushed the problems of homelessness and youth dislocation out of the realm of social problem to be addressed and instead into the realm of clear and present danger to be protected against. But is there something more to be learned from the stories of the three young people who committed these crimes? And if we did manage to learn those lessons, could we do a better job of supporting other young people walking a similar path? I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And that's the set of questions raised by former San Francisco Chronicle crime and criminal justice reporter Vivian Ho in her new book, Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids. It's a book that draws on extensive interviews with those three street kids, Hayes Lampley, Lila Alligood, and Sean Engold, and many others to draw a portrait of life as a homeless young person in modern America. Vivian Ho uh, joins us now in studio. Vivian Ho, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you were just a few years into your reporting career at the San Francisco Chronicle when you started reporting on this case. Tell us a little bit about how this case came to you and how your reporting into it went. I started reporting on this case as the crime reporter for the Chronicle. It just came to me as another assignment. I started reporting on it um, just as a typical murder that happened. Um, pretty much from the get-go, once the first one happened, then the second one happened, we realized that something was very off. And once uh, the connection came out... Because um, these, two, these two murders were a few days apart. They were a few days apart. And um, once uh, the connection came came um, came to fruition, um, <laughs> once once it came out that they, the two murders were connected, people um, were alarmed. The mugshots of these three transient youth were splashed across every news channel. They were splashed across our front pages, and everyone saw them, and everyone looked at these kids, and they saw them, and they saw the kids that, that um, they see in the street corners. They saw the kids that they pass in the streets. They see the kids that we see every single day in our lives, and they thought, oh my goodness, this could have been me. Hmm. And so there was a pretty dramatic reaction to this case from the general public. And I want to get more into the details of what exactly happened and how it was dealt with in the media and in the courtroom. But first, let's just talk about your decision to use this as the focal point for your book on transient youth in America. Why was this the lens that you wanted to focus on to help us get a better grasp of what these kids are going through and the path that they're walking? I think it started for me with the first um, uh, community meeting that took place in the Hate Street um, community. This was a community that had become accustomed to this sort of uh, transient culture. This this culture was part of the backbone of, of that made this community that made San Francisco the society it is today. 
But uh, when these murders happened, all these complaints and these worries and these concerns started coming out of the woodwork. And it came out that these kids were um, a big part, a big worry for this community for quite some time. And it, it really opened up a whole world of uh, questions for me about what is the situation happening here? What is going on with these kids? And how do we help them? And how do we help everybody else in this community as well? And before we delve into this even further, it's probably also worth dwelling on the distinction between understanding what somebody has done and excusing what they've done. And that's a theme that you grapple with throughout uh, the book. Because it can be easy in delving into the motivations or delving into the reasons why a crime might be committed to forget at times perhaps the harm that was done or the victims and the victims' families. And uh, I think that your book does a good job of never leaving the, letting the harm get out uh, from the center of your focus. So how do you think about that contradiction between understanding and excusing? I make it very clear in my book, and I made it very clear from the beginning, that this is not an excuse. That uh, exploring what led to, the, to these murders is not an excuse in, what, what's, in any sort of way for what has happened. A terrible tragedy has taken place. A terrible tragedy was committed to the Carter and the Carey family. And what was taken from the Carter and Carey family can never, ever uh, be replaced, can never, can never be made right again. And what exploring what happened, what led to those moments, is not in any way an excuse for that. It's a way to make sure it doesn't happen again to another set of kids and to another family. Right. And so that's some of the themes that we'll be discussing as we uh, delve further into this. Tell us a little bit more about uh, how these murders unfolded. What was this trio of youth going through when this all happened? These kids, um, so Hayes Lampley and Lila Alligood were in a romantic relationship. They were um, they were together for for about uh, for a few years um, when um, when this all went down. Uh, Shauna Angle was a fr- was a friend and acquaintance of Hayes Lampley, and they met in San Francisco. They were both they, they're all three of them were um, very deep in the drug world hmm. when this when this went down. On very they were on methamphetamines and um, pots and alcohol. They were heavily in, into drug use, um, heavily into this traveling lifestyle and living in the streets. All three of them had been living on the streets for, for years at that point? For years mm. at this point. And they all three of them came from fairly troubled backgrounds as well, yes? Yes, all three of them came from fairly troubled backgrounds. Uh, Hayes Lampley had a history of abuse. Um, Hayes Lampley was the main ringleader in this case, and he was the individual that I was able to speak to in most in depth. Mm. And um, he had a history of abuse, um, a history of of drug addiction, a history of mental illness um, that was never really treated correctly. And he... um, and all that rolled into one plus homelessness just really was uh, was a recipe for disaster and so if you could tell us a little bit about the incidents themselves as they unfolded so what happened was that um, the three kids met Audrey Carey um, during the weekend of Harley Strictly in 2015 it was a chance meeting um, 
and they decided to rob her. Uh, Audrey Carey was on her first solo trip in San Francisco. She was a, a wandering soul. She just wanted to explore. She wanted to travel. And uh, this was her first trip. And she met these kids by chance. She wanted to be friends. And um, she picked the wrong kids. Hayes Lampley and Lila Alligood had a plan. They wanted to move out to some land that Hayes Lampley had in his family in Oregon. He wanted to escape the life in the streets, and they wanted money to get there. And they thought because Audrey Carey was foreign that she'd have money. And she was so, from Canada? She's from Canada. Hmm. And they thought that she'd have money, and so they targeted her, and they robbed her. But they had a gun that they had stolen the night before at um, uh, from a car, and the robbery went awry. Mm. And robbery went awry, and it ended uh, with uh, a murder. Um, ended with a murder. Yeah. And so then several days go by, and then another murder is committed. Several days go by, and um, Lila Alligood and Hayes Lampley are trying to get out of uh, San Francisco. They're still trying to make their way to Oregon. They meet up again with Sean Angled, and they're trying to make their way up to, to Oregon. Um, they realize that it's taking too long for them to get up there. In two days, they only make it up to Marin County, and um, they're on a hiking trail, and they see Steve Carter, and they realize they need a car. And so they go to rob Steve Carter again, and it ends in bloodshed. Mm. And so two two incidents that are separated out by a couple of days. Uh, how did uh, the police eventually make the connection between these two murders? These were uh, the it was the same weapon that was used in both in both incidents, and um, they were able to track the three in Steve Carter's shooting um, from Steve Carter's car. Uh, they tracked the three to Oregon, to Portland, Oregon, where they were um, at a soup kitchen, and they were able to arrest them outside the soup kitchen, and they were able to get a confession out of um, Sean Angled first. Hmm. And eventually all three were convicted? It was a 18-month trial, and eventually there was a, a, a plea deal that took place. The, the original plea, plea deal was that Hayes Lampley would be sentenced to about 100 years, but uh, under New California law, if you commit a crime under um, the age of 26, then you are eligible for parole after after 25 years. Hmm. All right. So uh, setting the table there a little bit, giving a sense of what this all looked like at the time. I want to remind anybody or inform anybody that is just tuning in that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. This is our weekly deep dive into some of the major events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today we're speaking with Vivian Ho. She's a former San Francisco Chronicle crime and criminal justice reporter, talking to her about her new book, Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids, which traces the paths of homeless youth in the Bay Area and beyond to give us all a better understanding of this uh, trend and uh, what these kids are going through. So you describe in your book, you you, you characterize it as something of a witch hunt uh, that the street youth faced following these revelations about what these three individuals had done. So what? tell us a little bit about the public reaction to this case. Quite understandably, immediately afterwards, the public grew scared. They were very scared of um, what happened. The, these murders were, were 
odd in that um, only about 11% of murders are committed by strangers, and these were stranger killings. And on top of that, they were killed by uh, the. Um, these murders were committed by three individuals, whose mugshots were splashed across the news. They were splashed on, on front pages. They were splashed on news sites. They were splashed on, on um, on TV, and their mugshots look like everybody else that we see in the streets. They look like they could have been anybody. It's um, we we were talking. We we interviewed a bunch of people afterwards and we we heard all these um what was interesting we we heard from a lot of people that like oh i saw i saw you know Hayes Lampley here i saw Lila Alligood here i remember seeing her doing this i remember seeing Sean Angle doing that but um in the reporting of my book i realized that that couldn't have been true at all that that actually did not happen talking to the individuals and talking to the investigators it just turned out that it was just another street kid that they saw and so the story there is that people were just seeing in the faces of anonymous folks on the street, they were just imprinting the face of criminals onto them. People are afraid of what they don't understand and what they don't know. And what is most unknown is this group of kids who we see living on the streets. We see them and they seem able-bodied. They seem young. They seem capable. And we think, why are you homeless if you don't have to be? And we think that the obvious choice, the obviously logical choice, is that if you don't have to be homeless, you can not be homeless if you don't want to be. We don't realize what's happening inside, what's, what, how, what they've suffered before. And because we don't understand that, we think that we, we think that they're homeless by choice and we think that they deserve the life that they've chosen. And so obviously, this is an example of a time where probably most people go about their days not thinking about the issues of homelessness, not thinking about what the story of the, you know, they, they may interact with a homeless person uh, going about their day, but they may not think about that person's story, how they got there. Most of us go through our days in, in that state. This is an example of a time where it brought the issues of homelessness to the forefront in, in many people's consciousness, but it's also an example of a time where that gets brought up to people's consciousness for a very negative reason and because uh, something very terrible and, and horrible had happened. And is part of your motivation here in finding a way to bring people into the stories of these individuals that takes in more than just what we get in the headlines when something horrible happens? For sure. We only really talk about homelessness when something terrible happens. For example, there was that um, awful situation where that woman was attacked in um, in, in Soma, was it? Mm. Um, and it became this whole situation where you know people are now using it to talk about how they, they can't bring the homeless shelter to Embarcadero. Um, as in every single homeless person is going to attack people just randomly. When you think about it, like, what, you know, you pass homeless people every single day and you're not attacked. And you pass homeless people every day and you're not viciously murdered either. It's one of those awful situations where it's, you know, they have a lot of hurt inside them. They have a lot of terribleness that they're going through. And we have to understand that any of us, you know, with who have gone through those situations, we, we could very easily resort to something awful. But 
if we choose the other path and we choose compassion instead, we could easily not. Mm. So hoping here in your book to perhaps uh, reveal a side of uh, homeless life and the homeless perspective that many people are not often acquainted with. But uh, writing this book and doing the reporting for this book was also something of a revelation for you as well. You relate that you before you even began this book, you you met an individual in a San Francisco park by the name of Dave, I believe Dave Thompson. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that he left a, a big impression on you in uh, meeting him and then doing the extensive reporting with many other homeless individuals. Uh, it seems uh, seems like this was something of a journey for you. For sure. And Dave Thompson, um, my first meeting with him, I, be- I truly bought into the concept of homeless by choice. Mm. I really believed. Um, and th- th- that is the problem. You know, th- we-, we believe homelessness is a choice. We, as I said before, we see these individuals, we see them as capable human beings. And we think you are, this is a choice for you. You chose this life. But we don't know what they have gone through. And another problem is a lot of times they tell us it is their choice. And, you know, we have to accept that, too. You know, we, we have to give them their agency and say, OK, if that, that is your choice, that is your choice. But we also have to give them some time and space and allow them to come forward and be like, all right, if you do, do you need some space and like, do you have the option to not have that choice? Do you have the wherewithal to get out of this if you if you'd like? Because that's the problem. They had it could have been their choice to get on the streets, as in their choice was living in an abusive household, or their choice to, was to live in a bad foster care system, or. Um, but do they have the choice to not be homeless anymore? That's the problem. And so when I met Dave, he told me he was homeless by choice. And I bought into that. And I believed that there was this vagabond culture, that there were these kids that truly loved this life and that there were these freeloading um, just layabouts who just wanted free handouts. I realized that there was so much more to it, that there are these kids that were suffering, these kids who had gone through a lot, and these kids who need more than anything else are compassion, and they were definitely not receiving it. And uh, we'll get into that in just uh, one more second, but I want to let anybody who might just be joining us know that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. This is our weekly deep dive into the major events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area. Today, once again, we are speaking with Vivian Ho. Her new book is Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids. It's a book that grapples with the difficult questions raised by the challenge of youth homelessness. So if you could, uh, you said that it sounds like you had a bit of a perspective change at some point, uh, changing from feeling that these uh, homeless youth were living this lifestyle by choice. And uh, at some point, you, you, you flipped that perspective, feeling like maybe there wasn't as much choice involved in that as uh, you had originally thought. And I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of us probably do walk into this with that perspective. I, I spent a, a lot of my uh, young younger years in uh, Berkeley. And obviously, Berkeley, if you go to uh, Telegraph or Shattuck, the term that we used in Berkeley, it's not a very polite term, is gutter punk. And you, the streets are, are lined by uh, many, many young people uh, out there, some of them friendly, some of them not so friendly, really depends on the purpose. So some, some a little bit aggressive trying to uh, panhandle, get money from you. And you, you point out in your book that we are perhaps least charitable of all the different homeless groups out there. 
we are perhaps least charitable in our compassion with those who are young because the feeling is, well, if you're a young person, you're able-bodied, you could be doing anything with your life, you could be working just like somebody who has a job, just, uh, you know, it, it does feel like this is a lifestyle choice if you're just seeing that single-frame perspective of somebody sitting out there on the street. But you're saying that your perspective on this changed. Tell us a little bit about what in your reporting journey led you to change your perspective. We don't realize just how much people have gone through. We don't realize the effects that trauma can have on a person's ability to get a job, to function properly, to do what needs to be done. We don't realize what um, just proper nutrition, proper upkeep, proper love and care, any of that can really have effect on a person's life. On top of that, any second you spend homeless, it's just throwing fuel on top of the fire. Just any second that you spend outdoors, it, it just, you you are fighting for survival. And once you are stripped down to your spare survival instincts, then it's even harder for you to function in basic society. It's hard for you to get a job when you don't know how to be indoors. It's hard for you to get a job when you don't, know how to sh- how to shower or where to shower or how to be clean in- anymore. It's hard for you to get a job when you can't sleep a full eight hours, what, not, let alone a full four hours. If you, you have to get up in, early in the morning to avoid the police coming around to hassle you. It's one of those situations where you, the longer you stay homeless, the less likely you are to be able to function in society. It sounds like in walking into this situation, uh, you describe in the book that you came from something of a middle class background uh, from the East Coast. It seems like you had a little bit of the sense of a, a there, there for the grace of God go I as, as you walked into this. Did, did, did you feel like if your life had broken a few different ways, uh, you, you know, uh, you, you may have not been so fortunate? I feel like we all need to realize that. I feel like we all need to st- take a step back and acknowledge our privilege. I think we all could have been very, very less fortunate. I was very fortunate, you know, just looking back and just seeing all these situations and seeing all these kids and with coming from these broken homes with parents who did not know what they were doing. I called my parents every night in the reporting that I was doing and just thanked them for just being there. It was just, it was so horrible to see some of these kids and the the backgrounds that they had. But we all need to realize that it very easily could have been us. And just just to look at the draw that it wasn't us. And we need to be compassionate to everybody else because it, it could have been us. Hmm. Let's get into some of the more social science perspective on all of this. Tell us a little bit about this population as a whole. You write in the book that it's even difficult to determine what we should consider to be homeless youth because many folks that are living out on the streets perhaps have a suspended adolescence to some extent. It's really hard to determine exactly what is a youth and what isn't a youth. For the sake of um, of um, my reporting, I decided to determine a youth as um, anybody up to the age of 30, mm. which uh, I know a lot of people would have an issue with. But um, in this situation, a lot of these a lot of these kids, they have um, stunted stunted growth. They have stunted developments just from living in the streets for so long. When you 
when your 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 peak maturation is 17 16 you know the moment you're you're sent out on your own and you know living on your own and having to fend for yourself then that's when that's the age you stay at on the streets you stay that way forever you don't get a job you smoke pot every day you lounge around with your friends and that's all you know you don't find a way to grow up and so i i I purposely set the age to 30, and I spoke to people at the age. Um, I know a lot of um, a lot of uh, nonprofits, a lot of groups that work with kids um, struggle with this as well because a lot of um, a lot of their age ranges actually do go up to about 30. Um, they have kids in there, you know, up to 25, um, early 20s. It's tough. It's it's easy to have a lot of sympathy for people who are under 18 when they're actual children. It's easy to have sympathy for them, but when you know, when, once it's like early adulthood, it's hard. It's hard to have sympathy for 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 people that you think should know better. But the problem is, they were never able to reach the point where they could know better. And so, taking this uh, problem as a whole, why is it important for us to think about youth homelessness as a distinct problem from perhaps other categories of homelessness? Are are there a distinct set of issues there that are contributing to this? I think there's a distinct set of issues in that um, there's a they have a different set of needs and a different set of d- developments that that um, that uh, needs that, that need addressing and need guidance r- rather than you know say um, somebody in their 40s or somebody in their 50s would would need um, a lot of, a lot of these kids are just looking for a, somebody to point them in the right direction. They're looking for somebody to look up to. And that is often provided in some of these these programs that are available to them. But um, if they, the problem is when you when you you say, "Oh, you're 18 now, you have to go to an adult shelter," and you're pairing them up with people who are 40, and they're getting services that are for people who are in their 40s and the 50s. Like it's not enough to point them in the right direction. Mm. And. So, so what should we take away from this then? Uh, what, what is your hope that people who read this book, what will they take away from this? And you, you, you say in the book that you don't feel that you have answers to the problem, or you don't necessarily feel like you have the solution. But obviously, you're you're hoping that some that your readers will take something away from this. I got to tell you, that was the most frustrating part about this whole experience: just reporting it out and not being able to find a good answer. Um, I think every journalist wants to find that perfect solution and find that ni- nice, tidy way to tie up a story and have a perfect answer for what to do. But the problem is homelessness is complex and youth homelessness is even more complex. Um, Can we find a solution for um, broken homes? Can we find a solution for the bad foster care system? Can we find a solution for abusive parents? Um, No. Uh, But can we find compassion in our hearts when we look at this population? Can we not be as judgmental when we pass these kids in the streets? Yes. Sometimes it's baby steps. And what I'm asking for in this book is baby steps. Would, would you hope that people might go out and strike up conversations? Is it a matter of getting to know the people in your neighborhood? I think what these kids are looking for, they're looking for people to look them in the eye and 
see them as human beings because for a long time, for too long, these kids' short lives, they've been looked as less than human. Now, one of the other frustrations that you describe in the book is uh, your discussions with Hayes Lampley trying to find some sense of remorse from him, and you feel that you really never did uh, find any remorse in any of the statements that he gave to you. What do you take away from that in terms of what that says about his path and his journey? That was a really frustrating point for me because I, you know, that was another personal journey as well. You realize as a journalist that you go in with your own personal bias. I want. I went in hoping for a perfect narrative. I went in hoping for a perfect story that he would, I would come and find this remorseful human being who would be beating his chest and just ready to cry and be ready to, to just ask for forgiveness. I did not find that. I found the same kid who was just staring blankly, who showed little to no emotion, who just was saying the right things to get by. What I found after some thinking and after more talking to him, and I sat with him for a lot of hours in prison talking to him, and what I learned from that, what I gleaned from all, all my time with him was that he was still in survival mode. I felt that he was still living like a kid on the streets. I felt that he was still doing what he needed to survive, basically. And I feel like until he learns to drop that, until he learns to stop living to survive, then he can't truly feel remorse. Because what what is remorse and what is compassion? That is the ultimate luxury that we're allowed to feel. I mean, if any of if anybody on the street were allowed to feel bad for the things that they did, if they were allowed to feel bad about taking up space, if they were allowed to feel bad for loitering, for being dirty outside, for for sleeping outside, they would not be able to exist. They, you, you can't feel bad and be homeless. It's impossible. And so for an until he stops living to survive, then he can't truly come to terms with what he what he did. I hope that he does one day. I don't know if he will, but I really truly hope that he does. All right. We're going to close it on that point. We have been speaking today to Vivian Ho. She is a former San Francisco Chronicle crime and criminal justice reporter. The new book that we've been discussing all this way through is Those Who Wander, America's Lost Street Kids. Uh, And uh, Vivian Ho, thanks so much for speaking about it with us. Thank you. You can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.